Well, it's been an exciting morning already, so uh, I'm glad uh, we could uh, actually go old school there and use the hymn book. That was some good singing right there. That was good. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, the, uh, the poet uh, John Greenleaf Whittier said, For all, of, all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been. And I think uh, he hit on something there. We all have a lot of might have beens in our lives. We all look back with regrets at certain things we've done or said or been done to us. If only we had gone to such and such school, things might have been different. If only we had married a different person, we would have been happier. If only we had taken our parents' advice, things would have been better, probably would have been. If only we would have moved out of Illinois, it would have been better. (laughs) Did I hear any amens on that? I'll get over it. Uh, uh, Whittier's words, though, tug at our hearts because we know what it is to have regrets, and and everyone has some of those. The the greatest regret of all for the unbeliever will be in hell. As they are in hell, they will be looking back. If if Luke chapter 16 is any indication, uh, Jesus uh, gives us a story that Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man looks back on his life with profound regret. Uh, he has nothing good to say. Everything is, is regretful for him. And all he can do is say, have mercy on me, which he did not have mercy at that time. Uh, for the believer, we are spared the ultimate regret of hell. We thank the Lord for that, right? But at the same time, there are often regrets. We look back on our life and, and we look back at the choices we have made. And uh, often we regret some of those choices. Uh, for example, many later in life look back and say, why did I spend so much time chasing after, my, after money and after my career instead of, of walking with the Lord and living for Him in a better way? Others might say, well, uh, why, did I not, why was I not more intentional in teaching instruction of the Word to my children? Uh, why did I wait so long to do that? And now look at the consequences of that. Others might say, uh, that, why did I react so negatively and so angrily to the circumstances of my life that weren't going well, the difficulties, the trials, the heartaches, and I reacted in such a way that I was bitter and even angry at God at times. Why did I do that instead of allowing Him to use those circumstances to, to, perf- to perfect me and mature me as He intended? And we'll look back on those things with regrets. Of, uh, we're having before us today an illustration of one of the great re- might-have-beens in all of history. It's the nation of Israel. What could have been different had Israel done things differently? This is an illustration Paul is giving us. And he's warning us all the way through here. He's warning us of the negative example of using a negative example of Israel of a regretful path, a path that he does not want us to travel. And so as we look at that today, there's actually three sections to uh, uh, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to look at the first two sections of this today, and then we'll finish it off next week and look at the, at the remedy for some of these things. But today we'll look, first of all, at Israel's privileges. Let me read to you again the first four verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Uh, Notice the repetition of the word all here. They all had the same privileges. They all had the same advantages. They all had the same opportunities. But for most of them, 
It says the Lord was not pleased. What a, what a sad might have been that we read here. Uh, Paul's looking at uh, Israel starting with the Exodus. We get back up to Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12 of, of Genesis where we find God saying to Abraham, I will, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless that nation. I will give them unbelievable privileges through you. Uh, and yet they, re they lost those privileges, not, not entirely, not internally, e eternally, but temporarily they lost those things because of what we see here. Now Paul picks it up at the Exodus. And as he does that, he's talking about things that were happening at that time, the privileges that God had given the people of Israel. And when we think about that, if you're listening to the uh, uh, morning broadcast that I do, the uh, wonderful day in the Lord, I'm going through the privileges and the riches and treasures that are ours in Christ. And so this fits right in. We are just loaded with privileges and riches in Christ. And so was Israel. Uh, we see a number of them. We look at five of them that Paul points out here. Uh, first of all, uh, he says that uh, they had God's guidance. And by the way, he's speaking to a people, most of them were Gentiles. But he, call, he speaks of the Father here, that our fathers were all under the cloud because there is that direct link as believers to the spiritual uh, people of Israel, such as the, the Jews at the Exodus. So there is that link that he has here. So he's talking to all Christians, not just Jews. But he said that they were, uh, that as he reads, tells them this, they're all under the cloud. First thing that we have here is his guidance. So they had the privilege of his guidance uh, this uh, cloud that they had, it, by wherever it went, they, they followed. If it stopped, they stopped. The cloud was their guidance. It was their, their GPS, if you want to say that, for them. You know, back uh, uh, the GPS system that we're also used to now, global positioning system, uh, first was launched in 1993. And it was launched by the American government after spending billions of dollars to, to, to organize it and fix it and make it work. They, they put up 24 satellites into the sky. The Air Force operated it, and it was for military purposes. Well, today, everybody who has an iPhone or, or a smartphone can, has GPS, and we are pretty dependent on it, aren't we? I, I can hardly get to my office without turning on the GPS. You know, it just, it's just something we use constantly in our lives today. Uh, and it's sophisticated now, it's changed a lot uh, in many ways, but one thing is very constant is it's always been an, an external system that guides us. The GPS systems don't, don't tell us what's going on in our hearts. It doesn't say what, what are your feelings. GPS is from an external source that pinpoints where we are and where we want to go. And so we have the same thing with our Lord. Uh, they were not guided by their feelings or their emotions or their intuitions. They were guided by the external source of God himself. And we have that external source today in his word. That is our guidance. It's not up to our feelings and our thinking. It's his guidance to us. Secondly, we have God's protection. Look at verse 1. It, they all passed through the sea. Uh, just think about that. When they left Egypt... Uh, in Exodus chapter 14, they came uh, to the Red Sea, and they had their backs literally against the sea, right? And they turned around, and they looked at Pharaoh's army, the greatest military force the world had ever known, bearing down on them. And they were hopeless. They were helpless. And in Exodus chapter 14, they cry out to Moses. They complain. Uh, they're crying against God, and that's when God says, be quiet, be still, and watch what I do. And what he did was open up the Red Sea one of the greatest miracles possible. And they walked through that Red Sea on dry ground. 
And skeptics say, how could that possibly be? How could you split a sea and how can you walk on dry ground? Surely what they really did is, is went on some shallow section of the sea and walked through where it was about ankle deep or knee deep. Well, if that's the case, then the Lord drowned the whole army with ankle deep water. So either way, it's a pretty big miracle, right? So one of the great miracles of all times, God protected them against the Egyptian army and brought them through that sea. Thirdly, they have unity with God and his leader. This is kind of an unusual phraseology in verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, uh, the word baptism is what throws us here, and, and I think we have to realize that baptism takes on different connotations. It can mean immersion, which it means here. It can also mean initiation. And so there is a, that, that sense here. They were baptized into Moses in the same sense that we are baptized into Christ. The Christian is baptized into Christ, who is our Redeemer and our Deliverer, spiritually. The people of Israel were baptized into Moses as, his, as their physical Redeemer and, and uh, Deliverer. And so he's using that picture there. So both the clouds and the sea were instrument God used to protect his people. Fourth, we have God's provision, verse 3 and 4. And he says, uh, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. And again, kind of unusual language. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not sure what spiritual food is. So when I, when I go to McDonald's after church today, if I do that, and I drive through the drive-through, and I say, could you give me a spiritual hamburger? And if the guy on the other end is sharp, he might say, well, do you want some spiritual fries with that? You know, and I, what am I going to do with spiritual food? I mean, you can't eat it, can you? And we know from the Old Testament record that they, that they were given true food. The manna, quail, uh, water. This was physical food and water. So what is he saying here when he calls it spiritual drink? And you might jot this down in your notes or your Bible. It simply means all this was derived from the Spirit. It came from the Spirit. It was derived from Him. And so when we're talking about that, this food was derived, spiritually speaking, it came from the Spirit of God. This water came from the Spirit of God. And so it is that sense, it's physical, but it's that way. Paul, Paul's going to use that same phraseology in 1 Corinthians. He speaks of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Those are gifts that are derived from the Spirit. He speaks of the spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, when he speaks of our body in heaven, it is a spiritual body. It's not a body without physical form. It's a body derived from the Spirit. So that's what he's speaking of here. They were given this uh, food, physical food, but it came from the Spirit of God. And then going on, we see one more thing. God's spiritual provision in verse 4. He says, for they're all drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now he, now he speaks of this rock here. And, and if you know the Old Testament, especially the Psalms very well, you know that the term rock is often used of God. And what a beautiful term that is, isn't it? In, our, in a day when things are always shifting and we're never sure, we don't have security in, a, in our world, and, they, and we've never had, the fact that God is our rock means everything, doesn't it? He is our rock, he's our fortress, he's our, he's our, he's our mighty uh, fortress, and so we have the rock. And it speaks here of Christ being that rock. Uh, 
this means that he gave us spiritual sustenance. Not only did he feed them physically, but he spiritually gave them the food they needed spiritually. He was the rock that, that followed him. The Jewish people, the rabbis, had a hard time understanding this, of course, because they didn't believe in Christ. So they had a hard time understanding this. And so they actually came up with a tradition that following the people of Israel through the wilderness was a gigantic rock. And this gigantic rock would often give water to the people, kind of like a big water train or something. Uh, it's it, pure myth, mythological idea. Something like that is never taught in Scripture. But, um, but we find here that he is the spiritual rock that uh, was for them and for us. So what we're talking about here is this. Everything we have, everything they had and everything we have is derived from Christ the rock. It comes from him. And so as he thinks about that and as he's applying that to the Christian life, he is saying, look, just as they needed Christ as their rock, so you need Christ as your rock to, to live the Christian life. We think of what Jesus said in John 15, remember? He said, I am the vine, you're the branches. And if you abide in me, then you draw from my power. You draw from my life. If you do not abide in me, you have no life. As a matter of fact, he says, without me, you can do nothing. He didn't say you could do a bunch. He just said you can't do anything without me. So Christ is referred to as a rock here, and that has rich meaning, as I said, in the Old Testament. There's a cyclical nature of Israel that Paul's pointing out here, and I think very likely he was, re- was thinking of, a, of one of the great Psalms, Psalm 78, as he wrote these words. And we're going to go back there. Psalm 78. This Psalm, a very long Psalm, by the way, uh, is a, uh, a psalm of 72 verses. But in it, if you read it, and you, it, you would uh, gain a lot of uh, value by reading it today. Uh, this psalm gives a, a full picture of the cyclical nature of the Israel and exactly what Paul is talking about here. So I'd like to work through it. In, in general, all this whole psalm tells of a cycle of God's goodness, God's loving kindness to these people that uh, was followed by the rebelliousness of Israel over and over and over and over. Israel sinned because they forgot God. Now I want to point that out. This is going to show up a lot of times. Look at verse 7. They should, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God. Now, I want to say this. this the, the great issue keeps going back in this psalm to their forgetfulness. Now, we're forgetful people, aren't we? We forget where we lay our keys. We forget where we put our sunglasses. We forget where we put our overhead projectors. Uh, we forget all sorts of things. We're forgetful people. But when it comes to things of real value, uh, one of the sad things is we often forget the things that matter. And one of the things we're going to see showing up here is how forgetful these people were about the, what God had done for them. And there's a direct application for us here, so don't nod off. Think about the forgetfulness of yourself concerning the things of God. I, I've watched over the years uh, in different relationships, different situations. I've watched people who had a strong bond with somebody, a good friendship, uh, a deep relationship, might be a family relationship, might be a friendship, might be a church situation. 
And I've watched people who spent years and years enjoying one another and being blessed by one another and being helped by one another who come into a situation where they have an argument. They have a disagreement over something. And they part ways. And 30 years of friendship and, uh, and loving one another and being kind to one another is destroyed by a moment of time when somebody gets angry and now everything is framed in their minds about uh, over that anger issue, that thing. And they've forgotten all the good things that went before. All the times of joy, all the times of blessings, all the time that person reached out and loved you. And I can think of very few things more horrible than that, folks. So, so painful to think that you can take all that, that, that this person has done for you or this church has done for you or whatever for decades and throw it away because of one argument. My father and his brother did that. They, they had been close friends for uh, about 40 some years, had been buddies. My dad half, halfway raised my uncle and they got into some kind of argument that I've never heard the details of and never spoke again till my father died. I thought that was tragic. If, by the way, if you're there with anybody, you know, go to the Lord, get your heart right, and get that thing right too. It's wrong. And so we have a forgetfulness here, in this case, though, of God. Now, I want to take you to a real positive, though. Verse 39 is a verse you, you ought to circle, memorize, put on your wall somewhere. It says this, God, we might forget he does not. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh a wind that passes and does not return. Aren't you glad that God knows that you're but flesh? That God knows your weaknesses? That God knows how, how superficial you really are? That God knows that though you might pretend to be stronger than you are, that you're not? And that God knows that when you fail, that he is not going to give up on you because he never reneges on his promises, which is found throughout this psalm? I, I find that more than comforting, folks. Because I have failed the Lord many times, and you have too. But he's never failed me. And he's never gone back on his promises. He knows my weaknesses, and he loves me anyway. Isn't that great? Nobody in this world knows my weaknesses like he does. My wife could give you a bunch of them. But she doesn't even know all of them. And God does, and he still loves me. I, I don't think we should ever get over that. And it should be one of the great motivations for the Christian life. That infinite love of God for weak people such as you and I. And so we start with this forgetfulness. And now we, we move on down to go back to verse 5. Let's look at four cycles that Israel went through. The first cycle is that they, what they, they were told to remember. And not only to remember but to pass on what they knew to the next generation. In verse 5 he says this. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born. Not only are we to remember God's faithfulness and his goodness, we're to pass it on to the next generation. There is no more important obligation that you have as a parent. Nothing even compares with passing along the truth about God to your children. Nothing else matters. You can prepare them for life financially. You can prepare them for a career. You can do all these other things for them. You can make them, help make them become very good at whatever they're gifted at. But if you don't train them in the things of God, you have failed. And you will regret that. It will be one of the great might have beens 
at the end of your life. And so he tells these people, look, I have given you a task. You remember what I've done, and you tell your children, and you pass it on to your children. That's the first cycle. The second, in verse 7, by the way, we've already seen, they forgot. They forgot the works of God. Instead of remembering and passing it on, they forgot. That leads us to the second one of the second part of the cycle is that is the forgetfulness. They did forget. Drop down to verse eight. It says, "But and not like not like their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God." Then look at verse nine. The sons of Ephraim were archers, equipped with bows, and yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and they forgot his deeds and his miracles which he had shown them. Ephraim is often uh, is one of the tribes of Israel and one of the most powerful tribes of the northern nation. And uh, Israel is often called Ephraim. And that's what he's talking about here. And Ephraim, because they had turned their back on God, turned their back on in the day of battle. They became cowards. It says here they, they were archers. They were well equipped militarily but they turned their back on God and then they turned their back on the enemy because they were now cowards in that sense. And notice the phraseology he uses here, verse 10 and verse 11. They did not keep. They refused to walk. They forgot his deeds. He's, he's being repetitious here at what they had done. Then verses 12 and 13, we see the third cycle now they, they were to remember, they have forgotten. Thirdly, they have forgotten specifically the wonders that he brought into their lives at the time of the Exodus. Look at the specifics in verses 12 and 13. He says this, he wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt and the land of Zorn. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and he made the water stand up like a heap. That's, uh, that's the exodus. Now verse 14 is the wilderness. And he led them with a cloud by day and on all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean's depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. So they specifically forgot the miraculous activities of God at the exodus and at the time of the wilderness wanderings. And that led to the fourth cycle, full-blown full rebelliousness. Rebelliousness. Verse 17. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to, te to the test for asking, by asking food according to their desire, and they spoke against God. Uh, would you again look at the repetition of the phraseology that he puts here? They continued to sin, they rebelled, they put God to the, to the test, and they spoke against God. Full-blown defiance. See, that's what happens when we forget God. That's what happens when we forget his goodness. We become increasingly hardened until eventually we're in rebellion against him. Here's a takeaway the next time you're tempted to doubt the goodness of God or his faithfulness, pause for a bit, get away from everybody else, go to a back room with your Bible, turn down the lights, and pray.
and remember all the times in the past when he's brought you through. All the times when he was there for you when you needed him. All the goodness that he's poured out for you your whole life. All the faithfulness that he's had for you. And then ask yourself the question, if he has been good and faithful and loving to me all of my life, then why wouldn't he be now? And let that change your attitude to trust. Because there's only one who can be trusted. And that is the rock that followed these people and that is in our lives. Take that away today. Because sometime this week or next week or next month, you're going to come to a spot where you wonder, is God really good? And when you do, do what I just said. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians now. We could spend a lot more time in this psalm. But I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians now and plug all this in to what Paul's saying. Paul's in a context. Most of you know that our chapters and verse division in the Bible was not inspired by God. These were put together by people, and they're helpful, very, very helpful. I'd hate not to have them. But uh, sometimes they get in our way. And this time it gets in the way a bit. Paul's in a context. At the end of chapter 9, he's talking about, about the fact that uh, he wants to run a race in such a way that he wins. He doesn't want, as he says in verse 27, to come to the end and be disqualified. He is going to discipline his body. He's going to make it his slave so that he is victorious in this run for Christ and never disqualified. And so that is his context. And he moves immediately into chapter 10 to talk now about all that the Lord, uh, it, it, all that happened with the people of Israel in the past. And then in verses 5 through 11, he will say, Israel is exhibit A. Ex Israel is the group of people that were disqualified. Paul says, I do not want to be disqualified. I do not want to, to, to not finish the race well. Israel did not finish the race well. They were disqualified. And here is what they did. And then in verse 11 of chapter 10, he says, all this happened as an example for us. There's a direct application. He is using this illustration for us as an example. So with that in mind, we find the people of Israel have sinned against God, sins against love. And we see their privileges. Now let's take a quick moment to look at their failures. In verse 5, we'll just look at one verse today. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Failure. Disqualified. The word nevertheless here. Maybe the poet's wrong. Of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these it might have been. Maybe of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these might be nevertheless. Nevertheless, though we were loaded with the privileges and the riches and the goodness and the love and the power of God, nevertheless, they failed. I don't want to be there. Paul didn't want to be there. You don't want to be there. And so he goes on to talk about that in these verses of Scripture. These people had allowed their wants and their desires and their self-centeredness to uh, cause them to lose their way and to wander in the wilderness. 
As most of you know, the, the generation that left Egypt never got there to the promised land. They died in the wilderness. They got lost along the way. There's a famous story that Billy Graham gave once of Albert Einstein on a, on a pl- train. Uh, as he was sitting on his tra- in the train, the conductor was coming through to punch the tickets and see where these people were going, make sure they paid and so forth. He got to Einstein. Einstein couldn't find his ticket. He was notoriously absent-minded, and he couldn't find his ticket. And finally, the conductor said, oh, don't worry about it. I know who you are. Everybody knows who you are. And Einstein said to him, I, young man, I too know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. <laughs> huh? These people knew who they were. They were the people of God, the chosen of God. But they didn't know where they were going, spiritually speaking. They were God's people. They were too big to fail. But they did. They did. You know, hardships accompany privileges. And what Israel didn't seem to know, and I hope you know, if you don't, listen carefully, with the great privileges God has given you, you are still facing the hardships of this world. You live in a crooked and perverse generation, Scripture says. You live in a world polluted by sin. You live in a world that that Satan has been given limited uh, dominance. God limits it, but still he is the God of this age. He teaches his doctrines everywhere. You live in a world that's surrounded by people that don't love Christ and don't know him. You live in a fallen world. You know that, right? So where did anybody ever get the idea that that the the Christian life is going to be a life of ease? That we're, that we're constant prosperity. Why, why is the prosperity gospel the fastest growing religion in the world when everything in Scripture screams against that? Everything in Scripture says no, not at all. There is the battle that you face. You know, when we go to the gospels, we see Jesus. What did Jesus tell people that wanted to follow him? Count the cost. Count the cost. If you follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, leaving behind so much. Count the cost. Are you willing to pay that price? Jesus never had this simple gospel, this simple, oh, you know, pray this prayer, go to heaven, live like you want to. That's a manufacturing, been manufactured by people today trying to build churches to big numbers. There's nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with what Jesus taught. The Lord warned us, Old Testament warned us, the New Testament warns us. It tells us constantly, we are in a battlefield. We're not on a playground. If you don't know that, you're going to be constantly confused, constantly disappointed. And the scripture warns and talks about it all the time. But what it does say also is that we battle not alone. We battle with Christ who goes before us, who is our rock, who sustains us, who gives us a sustenance, who picks us up when we are so far down we can't pick ourselves up. He's there with us every step of the way. And we can't do nothing without him, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? You know, Israel had it all. Every privilege available for physical and spiritual success, and they wasted everything. The Exodus generation never made it to the promised land. They got stuck in the wilderness. And so Paul talks about the need for discipline so that we may not be disqualified in chapter 9. And he gives Israel an example. If, if this could happen to Israel, if they could fail so miserably, why not us? Is what he's saying. 
We need to be in discipline of ourselves and through God's power and Christ's strength. In Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice said to the chest-hard cat, uh, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat says, that depends a great deal on where you want to get to. And Alice says, I don't much care where, so long as I get somewhere. And the cat said, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Eh? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to end up? Well, if you want to end up where God wants you to end up, in living a life that is, is victorious in Him, a life in which you are productive for Him, a life where you, you, you live in trust of Him, if that's where you want to go, then you have a direction set by the Scriptures on which way to go. You know, as we come into 2022, I know that many, many people are weary. You sense it, you know it. Um, the COVID has been around for too long now and is not going away anytime real soon. We're exhausted by what's happened there. Social justice wars have confused many people and angered many people. Uh, the gender uh, confusion that we see today has caused worry and fear for many of us. It is those who know where they are headed, who know who will guide them, who know who can be trusted, who know who they can draw upon. It is those who can run the race set before us in such a way that we will win the race and be victorious. Paul the apostle, the great apostle, wanted more than anything else to win the race. He did not want to be disqualified. And he lays out for us this whole scenario as an example so that we too would follow in those footsteps. And so we have the great teaching of scripture here. Next week we'll pick up the rest of this particular section where he gets down to the real nuts and bolts of how we can have the victory over these things. So we'll look forward to that next week. Father, we thank you now for your word and, and your teaching and the truth. We thank you most of all for yourself and Jesus Christ and all you mean to us, Lord, and all you do for us. We are so unworthy of all that, uh, that you give us. We're so unworthy of your privileges and your treasures that you have loaded us with. We're unworthy that you love us so much, and yet you do. And Lord, may these be great uh, catalysts to living for you and serving you and loving you as you would desire. Lord, we pray for that in your name. Amen.